The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Shomik Dutta, co-founder and managing partner at Overture Climate VC, focuses on all sorts of fascinating startup uh, and climate change technology from concrete to energy production to storage to carbon capture to material science to alternative fuels. This is really a fascinating discussion about some of the latest, greatest technology that's going to help the world get to a carbon neutral status and maybe even a carbon negative status to roll back the impact of 250 years of burning fossil fuels. I I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating, not just because Shomik has a little bit of a political background and had worked in both um, of Obama's uh, campaign, where he was frequently fired by the soon-to-be president, um, but still managed to maintain his job, but because of his deep and broad knowledge of uh, the technologies behind climate change, he said this isn't a green investment so much as a money-making economic investment, and if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss the opportunity. Uh, with no further ado, my conversation with Overture Climate VCs, Shomik Dutta. Barry, thanks for having me. So, so what was the original plan? Was it was it politics or finance? Where were you thinking of going? It was always politics. I grew up a political junkie, uh, worked on uh, Senate races and governor's races, and had the really good fortune of linking up with Barack Obama in 2007. I was one of the early staffers on that campaign, and it ended up obviously being this incredible rocket ship, a kind of startup in its own right. Uh, and it was that experience that convinced me that it's really possible to do big, daring, hard things. You know, watching the president sort of go from a U.S. senator who's still paying off his law school loans to stepping into the most important job in the world was an inspiring and crazy experience. What, what did you do for the campaign in 08? And then what'd you do in 2012? I was his fundraiser. So I oversaw the mid-Atlantic states, about uh, nine states. I was 24 years old, uh-huh. uh, cocky and a little bit insane. I'd read a lot of books about Rahm Emanuel. So I thought you were supposed to swear at people and yell and <laughs> uh, push hard, which I did. And proud to say that we outraised Hillary Clinton from the very first day that I joined. I turned down an offer from Hillary Clinton at the time, which... Uh, you know, my father's a risk-averse immigrant, so his two pieces of advice for, to me were to work at Lehman Brothers for investment banking. Good call. And to work for Hillary Clinton, not Barack Obama. But those are the only two things I've ever ignored his advice on. And, and well. your dad's 0 for 2. <laughs> my dad's 1,000 for 1,002. But <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So so um, how did you go from working in the campaign to working at both the White House and the FCC? Uh, you know, you could say a lot of it was political nepotism. Candidly, I was a you know coffee boy. I was Greg Craig, the White House Counsel's special assistant. Uh, and as puffed up and important as I thought I was on the campaign, when it turns to governing, it turns out you need some specialization. So I quickly realized that I didn't have a sort of path to being the National Security Council advisor at any <laughs> point. So I, you know, after serving coffee for about a year, working on a Supreme Court nomination, shifted to go work for Julius, who was the FCC chairman. And that's when I realized that a lot of the smartest guys in the room were actually in, in, in business uh, more often than not, uh, and got really interested in shifting my career that, that, that direction. So, so someone interested in doing work in politics, how do you get a foot in the door? You know, it really starts with picking a campaign. And a campaign is like a lot like a startup. It's a really flat organization. You have to raise an unbelievable amount of money and spend it in a short period of time. Uh, and you have this discrete objective that everyone's nailed towards. And so for a young person, there's no better experience than working on a campaign where, where if you can get something done, uh, there is a job for you. And so that's where I really you know, cut my teeth, working on campaigns, getting stuff done. Um, and you know, no better boss than, than Obama. So venture capitalists are notorious for having this really in-depth network of of high-performing, plugged-in people. How similar is that to what takes place in the world of political networking? 
It's funny. I heard uh, Doug Leone, the founder of Sequoia, the managing partner at Sequoia, have this great phrase saying there's many paths to heaven. And it seems in venture capital, there are many paths to, to heaven, right? You can have uh, a really well-networked media executive, as was Mike Moritz at the time. You can have drilled down operators who have run businesses. Um, there are many different ways venture capitalists can add value. And it was my observation in climate investing that there were no venture capitalists that deeply understand government and regulatory risk, despite the fact that the government's playing the central casting role in the energy transition. And so I thought this might be a pathway to heaven for us, observing Tusk Ventures in New York doing this quite successfully for Coinbase and DraftKings and Uber. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't really care about sports betting, but I really thought that I could add value to these startups as a venture capitalist that deeply understood government. And so that was my path to heaven. So you grow up in Chicago, you moved to D.C. after college. Was it for a political campaign or was it just a coincidence hey, this local business seems pretty uh, pretty fascinating. No, explicitly for campaigns. And so, you know, moved around zip codes in a lot of sort of post-industrial wasteland places. I lived in Baltimore working for Martin O'Malley's first governor's race. I lived in Rhode Island working for a Senate race. And then in 2007, got recruited into Obama. And that's when I moved to D.C. Huh. So so your campaign staff during Obama's re-election campaign, um, what were you doing with the Biden administration when uh, they were running in 2016? I built a impact venture fund that you referenced called Higher Ground Labs. It was our observation that you know Trump had benefited from a lot of new technology, and Democrats were still campaigning with number two pencils and spreadsheets. Now, and let me problem. ask you: that's I'm I'm going to interrupt you right there because I rec- very vividly recall reading a Wired piece from Wired magazine about how cutting edge the Obama campaign was with iterative uh, changes and A-B testing, and they just were raising more money faster for more people. You're telling me by 2016, that's already out of date and fallen way behind. You're exactly right. That's exactly the insight that actually led us to start Higher Ground Labs. Campaigns are like big startups, and you you raise a billion dollars, as was the case with Obama. You build cutting-edge technology, and after Election Day, the lights go off, everybody leaves, the email addresses go off and you start anew in four years as though none of that mattered. And there was no longitudinal inherent inheritance of learnings right. and data and technology. And so we wanted to build for-profit startups that could build longitudinally compounding innovation and standing as freestanding entities that could be even profitable for investors so that we could raise more capital for them. And so we did that. We built companies like Mobilize, which ended up shifting all of the volunteer action in the Democratic Party, sold to an Insight-backed, the private equity fund, Insight-backed uh, company and so things like that can both compound returns for investors, but also compound innovation to the party. So you don't have to start from zero every four years. So on your LinkedIn, I see you got an MBA from Wharton around the same time as the election. Please don't tell me you were doing both at once. I did both. It is not recommended. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of pounds and gray hair. Uh, but, you know, my deal with my dad, who came to this country with, you know, uh, a big dream, came to this country with about 200 bucks in his pocket. He worked as a security guard at Harvard Business School and attended Harvard Business School at the same time. You know, there's that line Obama has that every son wants to be live up to his father's expectations or to be something his father was not. And sure. I definitely fell in the first category. And so my dad would always point out, like, look, I came to this country with 200 bucks and he ultimately became the president of United Airlines. And it was like an incredible career. And so your felt- dad was president of United Airlines. He was as an immigrant who arrived essentially with a handful of mon- bucks in his with pocket. No- working as a security guard at night at HBS. And so, you know, those were big shoes to fill. And the thing that I always took away from him was that, look, the thing that inspired him about building big businesses and running them was not power. It was not money, though the money is nice. It's the ability to just help so many people. He said, like, the, his heroes were always people that could provide a lot of jobs, businessmen and businesswomen that could provide jobs. And so it was that narrative that was always in my head and the need to sort of live up to his big expectations at something to business school. Huh. Re- really, really interesting. So um, what did you study at Wharton, and and is any of that applicable to what you do now? You know, thankfully, there was no great disclosure at Wharton. I can't tell you very <laughs> much of what. I don't think any MBA can really tell you what they learned. Uh, but what I took away from it was an amazing network and some signaling value to say, hey, maybe this guy has half a brain for business, which I'm not even sure is true today. <laughs> <laughs> really, really interesting. So you have a quote I really like. You said you felt much closer to Governor Martin O'Malley than he felt towards me. Um, isn't that true how it is, how it is in all campaigns? Uh, everybody is looking and and sponsoring and loving the candidate, but 
they have to distribute Oblivious. their affection to millions of supporters. Yeah, you know, there's there's a right and wrong reason to get involved in politics. One of the wrong reasons, I think, that a lot of people end up doing is that it's a pathway to being closer to power. Right. And I observed it, you know, probably succumbed to some of it myself, but it's the wrong reason to be doing the work. And so I was, you know, kind of making fun of myself for that. But yeah, you're right. You know, these campaigns, you end up logging a lot of hours with these folks. You know, I was I was Obama's call time manager and fundraiser. Uh, you, you're again, you're anticipating my next question. How much time did you spend with Obama? And did you not feel the love reciprocated, or he? Because he seems to be kind of an unusual guy in in politics. Uh, a little more removed, a little more ascetic and monkish. You know, yeah, I think he tried to fire me a few times for being too aggressive in fundraising from his friends. But oh, really? I- I'll just say, you know, wait, th- you were you were Obama said, hey, that Dutta guy, can we lose him? Yeah, this guy at, at is least too twice, much. At least twice. Though my favorite moment was in the dungeons of two thousand seven. When, you know, doldrums of 2007, we were 40 points down to Hillary Clinton and I was still producing multi-million dollar fundraising outcomes for him. And so one time when we dropped him off at the, uh, you know, he would come, he would start events saying, who do I have to apologize to in here for you, Shamik? And I'd be like, that guy, that guy, that guy. So we dropped him back at his apartment and he doubled back to the car and he said, Shamik, keep doing what you're doing. I'll keep apologizing. It's worth it. And it was like the highlight of my career. <laughs> is, is that your Obama? Is that as good as it gets? Hello. How are you? <laughs> I can't help but notice that President Obama was probably the first president to take a very strong stance on climate change. How much of your work with the Obama campaign inspired you to start investing in the space? I think the experience from the Obama world was that everybody, you know, there's this great Bill Gates line that everybody underestimates what they can do in 10 years and overestimates what they can do in one year and taking a long-term path to doing something really big and grinding on it for a long time can produce extraordinary outcomes. You know, the president was the architect of the Paris Accords, which is the framework that the IPCC now uses to ensure that the world is driving to a net zero future. And so there is a, you know, the sparkle I take away from the Obama days was a challenge from him, which is that we should do big things. And if you focus and execute every day for a long period of time, most people probably underestimate what they can accomplish. So we just kind of wrapped up the Climate Accords, um, surprisingly, in the Middle East, sponsored by a big oil producing nation. How do you look at those events? Are these just photo ops or does something substantial come out of them? I think... There was a great deal of heart palpitation about this COP, in part because, as you correctly note, the head of the largest oil and gas company in Abu Dhabi was the same man in charge of the COP. And yet, all 180 countries left with a firm commitment to decarbonize and to transition away from fossil fuels and oil and gas with an emphatic, um, uh, you know, uh, agreement around, around that big daring idea. That's the first time this has ever come out of a COP. And I think the U.S. government's leadership in this, particularly on methane, is going to start reverberating through the market in a really positive way. So I've been reading a bunch of stuff on methane lately. Um, not only is it a notorious, noxious waste that contributes to um, the greenhouse effect and all sorts of other issues, we just burn off tons of it in flares and other thing. Not too long ago, 60 Minutes had a uh, episode where they showed a company was essentially capturing that flare, using it to generate electrical power, and running data service centers right there on the oil field. It's called Crusoe Energy. I'm actually an investor in that company. It's a very uh, tell us a little bit company. about that. That's quite fascinating. You know, the two, the twin problems we're going to realize in the near future that we'll have these stranded energy assets that are often leaking methane. We have oil and gas wells that have sustained casing pressure that are bubbling methane. We need to seal those wells permanently or make use of the methane because the methane has a great deal of economic value. The second challenge we have is that our next generation compute is going to be incredibly electricity intensive, far more than uh, what we experience today. And so data centers are going to become OPEX pain points for a lot of companies. And so what Crusoe wants to do is resolve those two challenges, take stranded energy assets, utilize that energy creatively, and also ensure that we can de- decarbonize data centers, which are increasingly a large pain point in emissions. There's another company to mention we invested in recently called BioSqueeze, which has invented a new way of 
permanently sealing oil and gas wells. Some of these operators like Halliburton are spending millions of dollars sealing and resealing oil and gas wells with no success. And so these guys have invented a biomineralization technology that is stronger than cement that can shoot into these wells and permanently seal them, which may one day even replace cement in all infrastructure one day is what we hope. So huh. there's some exciting things happening around methane. So this year's COP conference of parties uh, about climate change uh, ends up with governments making a number of uh, commitments and a lot of nonprofits uh, joining in in those commitments to get towards a, a carbon neutral. But it kind of raises the question, is that as effective as what you do in terms of venture capital and startups that are looking to, in the private sector, combat climate change for profit? It's all required. Every single aspect of society will be impacted by climate change. And so every single aspect of society has something to contribute. And every asset class of capital um, from you know private equity to growth to debt will have to play a role. The reason governments are so centrally important is that it's not enough for us to look at business pain points caused by climate, of which there are many, by the way, supply chain disruption, extreme weather events. Um, but you also need to start creating sticks at the same time to push fossil fuels off a cliff. And so I'm encouraged by the fact, for example, that internal combustion engine vehicles will be banned altogether in the state of California in 10 years. Similarly, France has banned all internal combustion flights within its own borders in the next 10 years. And so these sticks are also important to intersect with the carrots that help new technologies technologies mature fast enough to replace them. And there will be a fundamental rewiring of the economy that takes place as a result. When you think of every single aspect of industry, steel making, fertilizer, that you know, $10 trillion of EBITDA will be at stake in this turnover. And so there's an enormous prize for those that can innovate quickly and help decarbonize. You mentioned the company that seals up wellheads. Uh, Bloomberg had an article not too long ago about what a massive carbon footprint concrete manufacturing has. Tell us a little bit about that technology that theoretically might replace concrete in the future. Yeah, you know, one of the central insights here is that industrial heat is the key input to manufacturing just about anything. If you think about steel making from iron, if you think about concrete, if you think about a lot of food and ethanol, methanol production, all of it requires, in the United States alone, $140 billion worth of industrial heat, almost all of which comes from natural gas or coal. And to get really high temperatures from that heat is sometimes difficult. And so there are breakthrough technologies we're excited about, one called Antora in particular, financed by Bill Gates and Chris Saka and by Overture. And these three Stanford PhDs have figured out a way to take grid-connected renewable electricity and produce industrial heat above 1,800 degrees Celsius. And when you think about the hardest to decarbonize industries, you know, about 95% of all industrial manufacturing can be decarbonized with that kind of heat. And what's amazing about this company is they're not going, you know, it's called the Mr. Burns test. I'm not, I can go to a conglomerate who does not care a lick about climate change and convince them that I can save them OPEX with this decarbonized solution. It has nothing to do with climate change in their minds, and they it's would still want It's just a good investment, a money-saving opportunity for exactly. companies in the space. So the Coke, Coke Industries is behind this company, has taken them to a lot of their conglomerates. Huh. And it's a really exciting technology because it is just beating natural gas at its own game. And that is, you know, a theory of change for us is that if you can beat... Uh, natural gas at its own game and save conglomerates and big businesses money, they will adopt your technologies. It becomes more challenging when you're bringing them green premiums and things that are a little more expensive. So, so, so correct my ignorance, if you will. I look at natural gas as a transitional energy source from oil and coal to ultimately renewables. Tell me where that thesis is wrong. It was correct. It, it, it was absolutely a better source of fuel than coal, which, you know, produces black suit and all kinds of problems and diesel. Now, the, what about clean coal, the he key says is, with a smirk <laughs> on his face? The key is to now transition from natural gas. You know, natural gas is a... Um, is a nice word for methane. It's primarily right. methane. And methane is about 80 times more warming than carbon dioxide. And so if carbon dioxide is one blanket thick to keep the earth warm, you can think of LeBron James height blanket to the, tra the molecule traps far more heat and doesn't allow our sunlight to radiate back to outer space as it should. And so 
the key now is that renewables have this extensive runway since we thought of natural gas as a bridge fuel. And candidly, the lowest costs of energy today are solar and wind. And so businesses can make rational decisions to adopt them. Um, and the, the, the key is to now sort of transition us off this sticky drug that we've been addicted to for some time. That wasn't true a couple of years ago. Uh, renewable energies like solar and wind were pricier than natural gas and, and oil. Today, the price of, of solar and, and wind just keeps falling and falling. Is it accurate to say on a um, per kilowatt basis, they are now cheaper than carbon-based fuel? They are absolutely the cheapest forms of electricity available in most places in the world today. A staggering statistic, the capex of a new solar plant is today cheaper than the opex, the annual opex of a coal plant. Really? And so these things, you know, the human mind is sometimes bad at tracking exponential change. The logarithmic drop in solar and wind prices continually surprises even the most bullish analysts. Um, and I think the same is now coming true for lithium ion and a lot of these other technologies. And so we are dropping down these logarithmic cost curves. And what's interesting is I think there's a geopolitical reality today in a global contest for power with China. The countries that are able to have the lowest cost of plentiful energy that does not require any kind of foreign inputs, that has a domestic supply chain underneath it that can produce that energy on their own, that will be one of the key drivers to global hegemonic success in this new world, coupled with next generation compute that's also within our own supply chain. And so the last time we saw a great power struggle like this was in the semiconductor boom, where, where Fairchild, semi, semi, Fairchild Semiconductors, Intel, Texas Instruments were built. Those were not like the bits that are traded in software today. Those were atoms. It was hardware investing that governments were deeply involved in. So the 50% of the revenue of uh, Fairchild in the early days came from the Pentagon. Similarly, TSMC, when it was built, 50% of that CapEx was handled by Taiwan. And when Samsung went into semiconductors, the same proved true of the South Korean government. The same is going to be true of climate investing today. A lot of the innovative hardware must be built today, and that will require intense government involvement. And that's why uh, Overture's um, uh, thesis is that investors that deeply understand and can navigate government and regulatory complexity can actually produce alpha for their investors. Because it's a bit like in World War II, if you knew what the U.S. government needed, if they were going to need to pay betting manufacturers to make parachutes, you know, that's an important insight to be able to drive the best investments through. Huh, really, really very interesting. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So, so let's talk a little bit about what you look for in a climate investment. Is this about um, looking for companies that are going to be cash flow positive right away? Or are you willing to be a little more long term in your thinking? Venture capital is an incredibly patient game, right? On average, 10 to 12 year positions you're taking. As we saw with Union Square Ventures' first fund, I think it took them almost 16 years from start to finish. So it's an incredibly and that, patient. That worked out pretty well, didn't it? worked out great. It's an incredibly patient, deeply liquid game. But you know, to radically oversimplify what we look for, we're looking for visionary, unbelievable founders. Founders are the soul of startups. And we're looking for unbelievable founders with deep expertise in what they're building, uh, coupled with differentiated technology that can help unlock gigantic markets. And so to give you a couple of examples, we're investors in a company called Dextmat, which has invented a carbon nanotube technology that is stronger than steel, lighter than aluminum, and more conductive than copper. Copper is going to be one of the most important metals in all of electrification. Aluminum is in every aircraft and every airplane, a lot of uh, phone, phone poles and wires, and steel is steel. This technology might fully decarbonize in a carbon-negative way a metal that is stronger, more conductive, and lighter. And so those are moonshot 
examples of what we're looking for and that require a lot of technological and go-to-market innovation to be successful. But if they are, I think there are trillion-dollar rewards on the other side. So you're looking to replace the skin of aircraft, perhaps the body of automobiles, the wires on interstate or local uh, electronic transmission, electricity transmission, and even things like telephone wires and, and internet wires? Or is it, uh, am I overstating that? That's right. And the company today is, you know, the production of their, uh, of their metal is so expensive that only ultra advanced uh, defense manufacturers and um, w- companies testing R&D can afford it. The bet is that they can drive down the cost by a thousand, you know, one one thousandth the cost over time and produce something that is just better than the industrial inputs that have very carbon intensive emissions footprints, as we've mentioned before. And so if you're an aircraft and can find something lighter than aluminum that can help your aircraft travel farther, um, you, that's a money saver for the company. And so Do- those, yeah. Does material science have the equivalent of a Moore's law? It does. And interestingly, a lot of the materials today are reaching that high point, right? At at some point, semiconductors are reaching the theoretical limits of how many transistors you can wedge in. And so that's why innovating with ferroelectric materials and using AI to be able to optimize all of the dizzing different kind of material combinations we can consider is what we need to do for this next layer of industrial revolution. So when you consider just the 10 trillion in EBITDA, start considering every manufacturing process today as we do it, every food production process, the way we move ourselves with transportation, the way we grow food in agriculture, um, all of this is going to have to reorient in about 50 years, if you believe the science. And old conglomerates, large-scale conglomerates, are usually not the places that drive innovation. Right. And that's what makes venture such an interesting catalytic asset class to me in climate. I am not doing this out of the goodness of my heart. I candidly kind of missed the internet. I was so involved in politics. And if you consider some of the mega cycles, software eating the world, um, uh, China opening up, ultra-low cost interest rates, I think this is another me- mega cycle coming, and I don't want to miss it. And like all mega cycles, being early is the same as being wrong. And so a lot of our job is timing our bets to make sure where can techno-economics just beat fossil fuels? Let's invest behind that right now. So so let's talk about some of those different uh, spaces. I, I want to throw out some broad topics. You tell me what you think about those and, and what sort of investments you would be looking at or have already made in, in those. Uh, and let's start with carbon capture. You know, uh, some people have said we can solve climate change by just taking all this excess carbon that's in the air. What What do you think about carbon capture? I think if you believe the science, the IPCC has stated we're going to need to remove 10 billion tons of carbon every year by the year 2050. And if you look at what we did last year, we did about 6,000 tons. So there's a 2 million X scale up that has to happen, or a 74% CAGR, which is twice the growth of software. So there's an enormous undertaking. The question for us is, what is the lowest cost, most scalable, more ef- most efficient version of this? Direct air capture today still pencils around $1,600 per ton enormously electricity intensive. We have drifted a little bit more towards two categories. The first is enhanced rock weathering. We're investors in a company called Ion that has pulverized a certain silicate rock called olivine that can help basically grow more crops for farmers. They're very familiar with it. It's basically a form of fertilizer, while it also sucks carbon out of the atmosphere permanently. Very excited about technologies like that. We're also investors in a company called Climate Robotics that is similarly taking agricultural waste and pyrolyzing it, basically cooking it in an oxygen-free environment, and producing something called biochar, which is an excellent uh, soil amendment. It helps crops grow more. Farmers crave biochar, but it also sequesters carbon for at least a 1,000 years, according to a new white paper. And so we're really excited about companies and technologies like this. Huh, really interesting. What about just straight-up energy production? We It seems like it's been mostly incremental improvements in the cost of solar and wind, but not so much the productivity. They, they've also been very, very gradual. Do, do we need an order of magnitude improvement in the production of energy, or is it just something we're going to grind away at for decades at a time? We need a paradigm shift in energy production. You know, If you're going to electrify everything, think for a moment about electrifying every form of vehicle transportation, 
you're not going to have gas stations anymore. You're going to have to charge them. And so the estimates are that the United States is going to have to triple its energy product, its electricity production in its borders alone over the next 15 to 25 years. An enormous undertaking, right? This is, we're talking about trillion dollar capex required to be able to reinvent the grid. And at the heart of this is where can you dry drive the lowest cost electricity and have it be available plentifully and in firm power 24-7. And so storage and, I think, batteries will be- That's my next question is, you know, I don't believe lithium-ion is the end game in battery storage. They're just too big and too heavy, and they have a fairly short life cycle. What's the next phase in batteries that are going to be lighter, are going to improve range, allow you to use smaller batteries- and aren't going to start dying after a 1,000 full charges and discharges, but have a lifespan of 10,000 or 100,000 charges. You know, there are a lot of interesting things happening in Fusion right now that we're tracking. We have not made an investment, but I think the rate of exponential improvement and possibility in fusion is coming much faster than people realize. And you in mean the nuclear inter- fusion, like what drives the sun and, and stars throughout Correct. the universe. Correct. And um, so Commonwealth Fusion, companies like Avalanche, which are, which are in the lower carbon portfolio, are incredibly exciting. In the interim, there's interesting innovation for grid-scale storage coming from companies like Form Energy. And hopefully, Antora in our portfolio is also going to be provide a huge storage buffer. And so, as you correctly note, lithium-ion is ill-suited for long-duration storage, right? For four to six hours, if you need to slam something quickly, it's perfect. And so, we think lithium-ion will continue to power most electric vehicles, electric aircraft. But for grid-scale, long-duration storage, you're going to require innovation. And that innovation is going to have hundreds of billions of dollars of reward waiting on the other side of it. You mentioned fusion. What about, um, I keep reading about the smaller scale traditional fission nuclear plants. We, we haven't built a new nuclear plant in the United States for decades. That seems to be changing now. There are a few small scale plants coming online. H- how do you look at, at nuclear? You know, I'm a bit of more of a skeptic. I think in the tech communities, you get a lot of folks who roll their eyes and say, just build nuclear and you'll be fine. The cost overruns in nuclear have been astronomic. And in building the grid scale plants, everyone is different. Whereas the South Koreans are stamping out units and learning from them increasingly over time, we don't have that those learnings here. And so on average, a nuclear plant is taking 20 years to build. Way too it long. is going 300% over cost. And so I am excited about the miniaturized nuclear applications. We're going to need a lot of energy to do things like electrolyze hydrogen. And that's going to be incredibly electricity intensive and potentially power direct air capture. So I think there's certain use cases there. But again, to learn that, you have to modularize and build a factory method that allows you to iterate and improve on your production, not build these one-off plants that are all looking different, all running out of money, all over cost. I remember about a decade ago, the great um, reactor hope was thorium. I kind of fell off the off the front pages. What, what's going on in, in that space? You know, I think a, a big challenge here is that there's real national security issues around building nuclear plants. And if you talk to the national security community, you know, they're very worried about being able to take enriched uranium and, and, and build dirty bombs out of it. And so um, if you couple the amount of intense regulatory scrutiny out of the nuclear regula- regulatory world, which is the most brutal place if you want to talk about regulatory sure. risk, national security security considerations, cost overruns, time, and a lack of like deep specialization in this country. I think, candidly, we're better off investing in wind, water through hydroelectric power, solar, and batteries. Those are scaled and ready to be deployed right now. And fusion already happens, right? We are already harnessing the energy of the sun in our, in our solar panels. And so I am personally more bullish on that as a, as a method of deployment. What, what do you think is the most exciting um, climate innovation that we'll see come out in 2024? I think a lot of the IRA incentives, the Inflation Reduction Act incentives, have yet to be realized in the market. There's a provision in the IRA called 45X. And what 45X does is, for the first time since World War II, pays OEMs to make things. So back to my betting analogy, if you were a betting manufacturer and the government wanted you to make parachutes, they would just pay you to make those parachutes before they even bought the parachute. And so you were going to see a staggering scale of deployment where investors in a company called Harbinger, which is an electric mid-duty truck, one of the most important vehicles on the road, the workhorses that drop off all of our e-commerce delivery equipment. Uh-huh. There is nobody building a good mid-duty truck today. Harbinger is building a mid-duty EV truck that is going to beat ICE trucks at their own game 
before incentives. And when you factor in things like 45X, this company Harbinger could have negative cogs. And so when you think about what that means for the scale of deployment, I would say the big surprise is not a particular technology, it's just gonna be the speed and scale of deployment is gonna singe your eyebrows. It's gonna be incredibly exciting. You know, this we're talking about a trillion dollar wall of money coming from the US government, from the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill and the infrastructure bill, to scale the deployment of a lot of decarbonized technologies, to remake the world as we've described it. And so that's what gets me really excited. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, you had referenced how in a lot of technologies, the government is the big mover. And and we could talk about everything from um, railroads and, and the telegraph to more recently semiconductors. The one thing we didn't mention is how the government essentially has driven the creation of the Internet through everything they did with DARPA and having a essentially hardened response to a nuclear attack is effectively where the internet came from. Um, you know, surprised to learn every single component of the iPhone from the touchscreen on down has an origination story from U.S. government programs. I, I mean, if you look at what came out of the moon landings and NASA, yeah. it, it's everything from the microwave oven to um, <laughs> arguably Tang. Um, but but I think we underestimate the impact of that private-public partnership. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you see in that space and what it's going to mean for climate transition. You know, I just watched Oppenheimer with my business partner, Tamim. I don't know if you've seen that yet. Oh, fantastic. Sensational. And it's such a terrific example of how the U.S. government can do things so much faster when it puts its mind to it. And in emergencies, and I believe climate change will be an emergency that every, will affect everybody and we'll all have to spend the rest of our lives solving together, um, there is no entity large enough that can scale innovation quickly enough to hit these net zero targets. And that's what makes it such an important place. And, you know, these national labs started their origin uh, from the Manhattan Project, and they gave us fission, right? Ultimately, our, our, our nuclear plants came out of the Manhattan Project. And it's a good example of what happens when you get a lot of buy-in and a lot of focus from government to unlock things, which is what the period of time we're about to enter right now in climate. So, so what other technologies do you find interesting? What, what types of companies are you looking at? So the heating and cooling of big buildings is a place of major focus. The built environment, buildings are responsible for that. That doesn't sound sexy and exciting. That sounds like it should. Basic it efficiency and blocking and tackling. You're but, right. But every large, you know, you look in a city like New York or Chicago. It's an immense amount of, of energy consumption. An immense amount of fossil fuel energy, using natural gas, still using diesel, still using coal in some cases of parts of the world, and yet everybody's urbanizing. We're building bigger buildings, and it's becoming an OPEX headache in some cases. And so we're investors in a company called Bedrock that I'm excited to announce. This is a technology founded by Jocelyn Lai and her co-founder, Silviu, who is the chief scientist of Baker Hughes. And he's basically taken a lot of ultra-advanced oil and gas rig technology and in invented a miniaturized rig that can drill subsurface to the depth required to unlock heating and cooling for huge buildings. So CIM, the largest asset owner in America with a million square feet under ownership, invested in this technology. And the, This the sounds like geothermal. It is geothermal heating and cooling, which is previously inaccessible to big buildings because of the depth required to drill would meet a rig that can't operate in urban environments. Right. And so the magic of this company is they can go to companies and say, look, I can beat your heating and cooling bills with a decarbonized solution that will save you money in OPEX and get you an unbelievable amount of credits from the U.S. government. And so those are technologies we get really excited about. Built environment is 40% of global emissions, 40%. So wow. it is not a sexy sounding thing, but it's very important. If you want to think about some of the more interesting sort of risk on parts of our portfolio, mm -hmm. there's an unbelievable company called Linian Labs we recently invested in alongside Union Square Ventures and a bunch of other unbelievable funds. They're building sustainable aviation fuels. Sustainable aviation fuels can take industrial CO2 waste and repurpose it and remake it 
using a Fisher Trophy process and a reverse water gas shifter to then produce sustainable aviation fuels. And we think this company can do it cheaper, ultimately, than what jet fuel A costs in the market over time. And so when you consider United Airlines and these companies, all of which have made commitments to use half of their fuel mix for jet, uh, for sustainable aviation fuel, there's a software-like scale-up, a 1,000x increase we're going to need to see in the coming years. And so that gets really exciting. If you can beat jet fuel at their own game and produce something cheaper, why wouldn't an airline want to use that? And So, so the- it's funny, funny you mentioned airlines. So when we look at ethanol, they're notoriously subject to um, they're they're not as stable as petroleum. If you put them in marine engines, or especially in a saltwater environment, there's a problem with with they tend to gunk up and they don't do well. And the tolerances in aviation fuel are even uh, more stringent than than uh, maritime or or automotive. You can come up with some form of aviation fuel that is able to fit those demands and that incredibly high requirements from from the aviation industry? Yes. Think of being able to drop something into their existing engines, molecularly identical to jet fuel A, that happens to be entirely carbon neutral, something that is actually derived from captured CO2, either atmospherically or otherwise. And so this is what gets us excited, right? Hydrogen aircraft would require you to invent a new aircraft. Right. Think about how long FAA approvals take. Electric aircraft will be great for short distances, but for long-haul aircraft, we don't see a path given the weight and density right. of those lithium-ion batteries that you re- mentioned. And so if you can provide the multi... You you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of jet fuel that is consumed every year with something, you know, fully decarbonized, it's going to be a much attractive and more easier path for airlines to adopt. So you had mentioned how complex the regulatory environment is for nuclear. How much have the recent legislation, um, the IRA, the Semiconductor Act, the Infrastructure Bill, how much has that allowed things to happen more quickly than they have in the past in terms of of regulatory approval. It's hard to overstate how staggering and ambitious and exciting the Inflation Reduction Act is. This is the single most comprehensive and aggressive climate bill ever produced by any country or anywhere. And what this is doing is allowing OEMs and asset owners to pull forward innovation because it is simply making these things cheaper than fossil fuel alternatives because of these eye-watering incentives. And so interestingly, I'll give you an example. We actually have a company, a software company called Crux, which is a marketplace for tax credits generated by the IRA. The ITC and PTC tax credits will be about $83 billion per year, according to Credit Suisse, which is about 17% of total corporate tax liability. And so this will have to flow from the producers of those credits to big banks, family office, uh, places, places like where you work that can actually monetize those credits and help their client, your clients save money today on taxes. And so these software marketplaces will be really an interesting way of demonstrating how giant the IRA opportunity is today. So what's the big obstacle that that this form of investing faces? There's been pushback to ESG and, and the concept of greenwashing. What you're really talking about is uh, innovation on the level of basic sciences, of physics, chemical, chemistry, material science. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what, what sort of skepticism you face. Well, for one, we can never bend the laws of physics or chemistry. And so we are we are taking engineering risk, but we don't take science risk as a fund. I think the two hardest things to bet on are sticks that come from the federal government that will actually you know, put a price on carbon and ultimately ban a lot of fossil fuel alternatives. And second, higher interest rate environments are going to be enormously punishing for capital intensive transitions. And so I think the two obstacles we face today are thankfully not technology, right? A lot of the technology we need to do this transition is here. The two obstacles are one, what's the regulatory environment that will force fossil fuels off a cliff? And then two, how do we ensure that this isn't more expensive? Because if you go to working class Americans and a bunch of, you know, effete, overeducated coastal elites say, take this electric vehicle, take this heat pump, it'll be better for you, and it ends up more expensive, that will break the Democratic Party. Uh, apart. And so we need to really focus on how do we do this as a what they call a just transition? How do you help you know, working class Americans actually save money on their bills? How do you produce, give them something that is not just better, but cheaper? Uh, the median, you know, savings account in America right now is $400 of total savings. And so if you go to someone and say, I need 90% of that for a heat pump today, no good. that's going to be a problem. 
What do you, what do you think of um, uh, products like the Ford Lightning 150, which I think the base price is something like $40,000? That looks like a truck think, that could find it. Yeah. Did it go up? It's $50,000 uh, yeah. to quite start. quite expensive, yeah. It started originally at forty. Maybe it's fifty now. Um, like the Cybertruck started at forty. It's sixty now. But the Lightning seems to be sort of that looks like a regular truck, but you could power your house with it. Are these things going to be useful in our energy transition? You know, one of the tensions I have, just to speak plainly, is that Americans like to drive big things. But yeah. from a climate perspective, ultimately, it is kind of a joke to say, like, the EV Hummer is good. You know, you're actually better off driving a used F-150 Ford Ranger than right. buying a new EV Hummer because of the, you know, carbon intensity of the manufacturing process. And so... That's a thing we need to massage. We do need to make this transition. You should probably surprise and delight customers, but buying giant, heavy vehicles that are not traveling very far and don't need to be as giant and heavy is not the ideal outcome, though probably this sort of consumer taste is here and we need to fulfill it. What, what we need to do is take like a 1980s era Porsche 911 and convert those to Now electrical. we're talking. Yeah, that That's can be exactly. my gift after doing this podcast if you uh, <laughs> wanted to send that to me. So let me jump to my favorite questions. Uh, we only have you for a few minutes. And starting with, tell us, tell us. You mentioned Oppenheimer. Tell us what what you're watching or streaming. What's keeping you entertained? There's an unbelievable uh, TV show about the French intelligence service called The Bureau. That is a must watch, and it's sort of the like what a U.S. allied intelligence service. How they dealt with Syria. How they dealt with Iraq. How they dealt with the United States from their perspective. Must watch. Uh, I just finished The Bodyguard, which was very interesting, and it's the UK. And anytime you get to see how a different country, even the entertainment, how they portray yeah. their their um, national security and, and police, it is always fascinating. Uh, tell us about your mentors who helped shape your career. You know, my father, who is still the closest person to me in my life, apart from my wife, uh, was my earliest mentor, and I couldn't be luckier to have had him. And he was the one that always challenged us, let us said, you can do anything, but whatever you do, be the best at. You know, push yourself uh, and do something big and help a lot of people. And so that is the sort of challenge that continues to push me today. I was also really lucky to work for Governor Martin O'Malley really closely uh, with with President Obama the, and, and learn from them. Uh, and then guys like Julius Janikowski, who is the FCC chairman, who's a partner at Carlisle, now an investor in Overture, has been a longtime mentor and friend to me. Uh, and I'm also mentored by my friends. You know, they say to be happy, make friends that are less successful than you. To be successful, make friends more successful than you. And all of my friends are more successful than me. I learn from them all the time. And it, although, you know, what's that Gore Vidal line? Every time a friend succeeds, a small part of me dies. You might still feel a little bit of that. It's but. such a terrible, terrible. I mean, I'm familiar with the quote. It's such a terrible, terrible perspective. I had a buddy from grad school who was wildly successful. And people always asked me, uh, doesn't it kill you how, how great Jeff is doing? Uh, you got to root for your friends. No, he's awesome. He's one of my favorite people yeah. in the world. No one deserves it more. And pe no one believed me. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely nobody. Uh, nobody believed me. Um so tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading right now? Books to recommend to the listeners. I think Ministry for the Future is the, probably the best book on climate I've ever read. It's Ministry a, for the Future. Ministry for the Future. It's a climate dystopia of, you know, the first chapter involves 20 million Indians dying in a heat wave. You know, And we are going to start seeing thermal temperatures around 155 degrees, which just got clocked in Tehran. And wow. so it imagines what happens to human life. How does human life flourish in those temperatures? Um, and then every other chapter is a is a scientific sort of examination of the underlying sort of science transition. So Ministry for the Future is fantastic. Um, I just read uh, David Wallace Wells's book, um, The Uninhabitable Earth, which is excellent. Uh, you'll need a shot of whiskey after reading it. Oh, really? A little, it's a, little depressing, it's a little, little tough? Yeah. But, you know, he has this sort of line that our kids will look us in the eye one day and say, what were you thinking or were you even thinking at all, which kind of haunts me. <laughs> There, there is a fascinating book uh, that was very early um, in energy investment called Windfall. Mm. And it's really fascinating because it goes to the various investment banks and funds and talks about whatever's hot's going to get hotter, whatever's wet's going to get wetter. And here are all these companies and technologies that climate is almost secondary. They're for-profit and some of them have done exceedingly well. It really, really was a fascinating book. And now we're down to our last two questions. 
Um, what sort of, unless you have more books, did I interrupt the book flow? No, no, no. All right. Um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad interested in a career in either um, climate change investing, venture investing, or politics? I think a startup is the equivalent of a campaign, which is incredibly flat, incredibly labor intensive. And so my advice to anyone that wants to get involved in politics or in climate is go work at a startup or go work in a campaign and just be the person they can turn to. If you figure that out, if you can be a person that I can turn to or any any leader can turn to and and know that they are going to handle that task well, you know, there's a really quick ramp rate for you. And our final question what do you know about the world of venture investing today you wish you knew 10, 20 years ago when you were first getting started? That it would have been better to get started 10 years ago than today. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't too early 10 years ago? No, I think 10 years ago, it was still a little bit more of a cottage industry with uh -huh. ultra low cost interest rates. And the zero interest rate environment allowed folks to take rewarding bets that you know delayed revenue recognition for ten years because it was effectively free, and so right. that was a heyday. Uh, I wish I had been doing venture more consciously then. You know, um, it's funny. I I say the same thing about running an investment firm because I see these firms that have been around 30, 40 years, and it's like God. If I would have started in you know eighty two, we'd be a trillion dollars. I can't. I feel like I'm late to the party. I I, I recognize the same thing with you. Yeah. But it's never too you know. 10 years ago is always the best time to do something, and the second best time is right now. There's a Chinese proverb, the best time to plant a tree was 100 years ago, but the second best time is today. Perfect. Perfect. Perfect uh, but statement. I will say, you know, I do think invest, uh, climate is one of these mega trends that is going that is just here. And it doesn't, you know, it is a, probably the easiest arbitrage investment I can imagine, which is to bet on scientists or, you know, uh, an opinions editor at the Wall Street Journal. And so, uh, you know, I, I just recommend to the listeners to really start paying attention to this. Once you start looking at it, the investment opportunity, the opportunity to make money is eye-watering in addition to being able to sleep well at night. That's great. We have been speaking with Shomik Dutta, co-founder and managing partner at Overture Climate VC. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 500 or so we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. Uh, hopefully it's still around by the time this broadcasts. At Ritholtz, follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps me put these conversations together each week. My engineer this week is Kaylee LaPara. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Sean Russo is my head of research. Anna Luke is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.